The following presentation is part of a six-week class titled Introduction to Mindfulness. The class is offered at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Glad you made it tonight. So I know many of you, um, but a lot of you are new to the center. If you have trouble hearing my voice, just wave or do something and I'll speak up. And uh, I'd like to begin the intro classes with a little practice. Um, it helps to remind us that what we're doing isn't theoretical. We're really learning a way of being or a way of relating. And we might as well start right now. So instead of worrying about if you're sitting, sitting in the right place, just sit in a way that's comfortable for you, however that might be. You don't need to close your eyes, but you might want to or have them partially closed. Maybe take a couple slow, deep breaths just to know what that feels like to breathe in slowly and deeply. Maybe it feels good, maybe it doesn't feel good. Filling the lungs and then a long and easy exhalation. Simply knowing what it's like to empty the lungs. And do that a couple times. So one more time, an easy and deep inhalation, followed by an easy and deep exhalation. And whenever you finish, just allow the breath to continue on its own and simply notice what it is that you're aware of now. So you're not choosing something to be aware of, just notice what's being known and see if it's possible to leave it alone. This is being known. Can this be okay? Cultivating a relaxed and alert, simple presence. And we'll do a little exercise. So we bring this relaxed and alert attention to the head. We can begin at the top of the head. Simply receive any sensations from the top of the head. See if you can just let the sensations at the top of the head be. Include also now the back of the head 
and any sensations along the right side and then the left side, the forehead and the brow. Noticing the sensations all through the face. See if it's possible to just let them be. So if there's tension in the jaw, for example, just knowing the tension in the jaw. If the lips are touching or slightly apart, simply aware of how it is. If you feel air touching the skin of the face, just knowing this experience and letting it be. Feeling the whole head together now, inside, outside. Is it possible to just let the head be? And then taking a couple moments, feeling the neck, the throat, sides and back of the neck. Bringing the simple, alert, and relaxed attention to the experience of the neck. Learning to trust things just as they are. It's not that we want them to be this way, but they are this way now. This is how the neck is. And then let the awareness settle down, soak in, and accept the shoulders, the tops of the shoulders, the shoulder joints. And then feeling both arms together. So feeling both biceps, both arm, underarms, elbows and forearms. Feeling the wrists, the backs of the hands. Simply noticing the palms and the fingers. Taking a couple moments, feeling the shoulders and the arms and fingers together now. And again, see if it's possible to just let the sensations be. Learning to trust the present moment experience because this is how it is now. And now practicing with the front side of the torso. So from the base of the throat, begin to Receive to open to the upper chest. In the most simple, basic way, like feeling the clothes, the clothes against the skin here. Feeling the chest, the breastbone. Feel the movement in the rib cage. Things just as they are the solar plexus, 
Noticing any sensations in the belly. All the way down into the lower abdomen, right to the groin, the pubic bone. Learning this uh, capacity to be intimate, in this case, to be intimate with the front side of the torso, including sensations inside the body, and just allowing everything to be. And now bringing the attention to the back side of the torso, beginning at the back of the neck, and begin to open to any sensations along the back of the shoulders and the shoulder blades and the space between the shoulder blades. Noticing the sides of the ribs, and the kidneys, the lower back, noticing any sensations at the tops of the hips, right down through the buttocks, the tailbone, all the way to the floor of the pelvis. And then again, we take a few moments, feel the entire backside. Learning to just let things be. Feel both the front and the back side together now, feeling the whole torso. And then letting the attention drop down into the pelvis. So once again, feeling the sensations at the floor of the pelvis, the groin, the structure of the hips, the hip sockets. Just allowing these sensations to be what they are. So we're not second guessing. Feel both thighs. The obvious touch points. Feeling the knees just as they are. And the calves. Shins. Noticing any sensations in the ankles, the heels. And then along the tops and sides of the feet, feeling the bottoms of the feet, any pressure, coolness or warmth, feel the toes, taking another minute 
and feeling the whole body together now. The simple, clear, alert, and relaxed awareness. The body's like the body's like this now. Can this be okay? And as an experiment, just see if it's possible to stop being aware. And opening your eyes when you feel ready, if they've been closed. And if you feel like you would like to, you can adjust your posture, stretch out a little. You, is it Carol? Would you try to turn the light up at the very end of the top panel? Right there, yeah. That will give these people a little less, not so bright, but just so they're not in the dark there. Great, yeah, that should be good. So maybe you got a taste tonight, or maybe you practiced, I know a number of you have, but this path or this practice of mindfulness meditation is not complicated and in a way it's not even uh, it's not even hard to do but it is hard to remember to do it and so a lot of the class is gaining enough respect or confidence in the value of the practice just to see how fundamentally uh, practical, pragmatic, useful, wholesome it is so that there we can have some momentum that will counter the opposite force which is the habit of distractedness which I'm sure you're aware of in your life and uh, in a way our culture, maybe all human culture supports, reinforces the habit of distractedness and superficiality so it takes a lot of <clears throat> confidence and a lot of practice to create a different kind of momentum in our lives or in our minds. And that's really what the class is about. And you know, a six-week introduction class, it's not going to be enough. But I, I forget who it was. Someone said this is their third time. And yeah, and I, I told her, some people have done it a lot more than three times. And I've taught it many, many times because I like to hear these basic instructions over and over again because like I said the practice isn't complicated 
but it's the forgetting. It's forgetting what the practice is, forgetting why the practice is important that kind of slows us down. So one way or another, this is just the beginning. It's not like six weeks and then you're kind of done. It's like six weeks and then we're on our way. So I always say at the beginning of the intro class, because we could have made it a 12-week class or we could have made it two hours or three hours every night, every week or twice a week. Or, But you know, that only makes sense if you think that then at the end you're done. So we, you know, we make it relatively easy, six weeks, hour and a half, just as a way to get a taste of why the practice might be really useful for us. And then, you know, then we'll find a way to keep it going, hopefully in our lives. But we really need to give it some time. So I say this so that next Tuesday night, 6.30, even though it seems like a really good idea, <laughs> come next Tuesday night, you may think you've got a lot of other things better to do, like take a nap or see your favorite show. Or So you want to make a commitment because you're not really going to know if it's useful unless you dig in a little bit not just by showing up every Tuesday night for six weeks, but even more importantly, doing your best to practice every day. And, you know, why not make a resolve not to go to bed unless you practice? Whatever that might look like. Now, it would be nice if you could practice 35, 45 minutes every day, but I know that's not going to happen for everybody. So make a commitment to practice every day, no matter what that looks like. And I really mean that. So. Even if you are tired and it's been a long day and you think all you could muster is two minutes, well then do that. Find your chair, find your meditation cushion, sit down, remember your intention, and practice. Because there's something really powerful, <clears throat> just the ritual, just the form of a human being sitting down in a comfortable upright posture without talking, without listening, but just being vid vividly present with their lived experience for a few minutes is so radically different than how we fill our lives that it makes a deep imprint in the mind. And so the more you do it, no matter how messy the sit actually is, no matter how much your mind wanders or how much you get caught up, how much you're distracted by the pain in your body, there's something deeply powerful about just engaging this simple form that we call meditation practice. So that's my rah-rah. <laughs> and uh, each week I'll talk about different aspects of the practice and I'll sort of weave two things together. One thing is this, uh, um, the deepening of the set of instructions. I'll basically be saying the same thing over and over again but the examples I'll be using like about what we're being mindful of or how we're being mindful will have to do with more subtle objects. So we might begin with things like the body sitting, but then eventually start looking at mental phenomena, emotional stuff, so that we can eventually take this skill and bring it to the full range of our human experience from very gross experience like hearing a jet fly through the sky, just that sound, just that reverberation. It's a very subtle experience, the movement in the mind, the movement of emotion. So that's one thing we'll be doing is sort of 
getting uh, the set of instructions over and over again and how it relates to various phenomena that human beings run into in their lived experience. And then the other thing I'll be doing to a lesser extent but you might find it very useful is I'll be offering some of the models that the Buddha used as he talked about this human condition. Some of these Buddhist models, these Buddhist teachings will be really, you know, you just will resonate with and you just immediately can integrate them into your life. Others may not make sense and you can just put them on some shelf in your mind and maybe later they'll be useful for you, maybe not. But don't feel like you have to be a Buddhist in order to be interested in developing mindfulness. In a way the Buddha, you know, obviously uh, was really appreciative of this capacity of our mind, our heart, to be mindful. And it kind of made it a central part of his spiritual path or spiritual technology, the developing of this capacity to be mindful. But being mindful is not about being Buddhist, it's about being human. Can you imagine where in life it would be inappropriate or unskillful to be mindful? I mean, where exactly would mindfulness not make sense? How could mindfulness get us in trouble? So it's one of these things, I think, I mean, I certainly believe this or have found this to be true in my life. It's one of these things that you can't have enough of. And if, if it feels like it's too much, it's not mindfulness that's too much. Maybe you're too hypervigilant, like you're attached to your mindfulness. Well, maybe the attachment to mindfulness can be too much. But the mindfulness itself, that, that experience of being awake and relaxed and receptive to how things actually are in the moment is fundamentally good and skillful. We all benefit. We should be learning this in preschool and kindergarten all the way through life. So just a few nuts and bolts. Uh, we won't take any breaks during the hour and a half class. So if you need to use the restroom, we have two there. You can quietly leave. But don't leave ever during one of the sitting periods. Wait to the when we're not doing a guided sit or during sitting time so that you're not disturbing the group. And uh, uh, there's uh, three handouts. If you didn't get them when you came in, you can pick them up on your way out on the table over in the corner. And also if everybody would sign in, it's nice to have a list of everybody who's come. And one of the handouts tonight explains uh, how Common Ground operates. Some of you might have questions about wanting to support the center. And you can just read that handout and I will explain everything. And if you have any questions, you can come up and talk to me afterward. So first, uh, just a little introduction about this particular um, tradition that we practice in at Common Ground. There are many different schools of Buddhism now because it existed in different places for long periods of time when they weren't interacting, so they kind of grew up independently. And Common Ground flows out of the Theravada Buddhist tradition, which was the kind of Buddhism practiced in Thailand and Laos and Cambodia in Burma and Sri Lanka. And, uh, and then it's come to the States and sometimes it's called Theravada Buddhism, sometimes it's called insight meditation or Vipassana meditation, sometimes even just mindfulness practice, which is a pretty generic term that's used in all the different Buddhist schools. 
And there's other kinds like Tibetan Buddhist practice and Zen or Mahayana Buddhist practice. So this is a Vipassana center. And Vipassana means insight. And so the reason that people have sort of come to this term is it, uh, it points to a central part of, the, of this path that the Buddha talked a lot about when he was alive, which is about waking up. And like I mentioned, realizing that there's actually this inherent capacity in the mind. Maybe it's not very well watered, very well developed, but there is this inherent capacity for the mind, heart to be clear and receptive. And in a way, there's no end to how much we can develop it. I mean, you know, if, if I interviewed all of you, you'd all, you'd all tell me that you're mindful. You know, anybody we'd ask, they'd say, yeah, I'm mindful, I'm awake, I know what's going on. But there's a real difference. You know, we know that in our own experience. Sometimes we're sort of the living dead. We're kind of there, you know, we're moving through our day, but we're not really there. We're sort of in a fog, maybe in a fog of dullness or a fog of restlessness. The mind is really colored by sort of an anxious restlessness or maybe we're just obsessed with this or obsessed with that, weighed down with some fear or some loss, sadness. So there are many ways that we are unable or feel unable to be vividly, wholly present, receptive, awake, sensitive, non-reactive in life. So the, this Vipassana or insight meditation practice initially is about having insight into what's in the way of being more fully human, I guess we could say. Because that's really what it's about. I have one teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, sometimes talks about how, you know, when we are weighed down by life, by the ordinary suffering, difficulty, stress, confusion in life, we become like an animal. In a way, um, the capacity of the mind or heart is suppressed and we're, we're kind of trapped in being a hungry and haunted, hunted animal. And that's just how we live. You know, you probably remember times in your life where maybe a week, maybe a year, maybe a decade, you know, you're hunted, haunted, hungry decade. When your mind was more or less consumed in a way that prevented you from being awake and res res uh, responsive and sensitive. So the question is, well, how does that come to be? You know, how does the experience of being alive and buoyant and receptive, clear, how does that experience come to be? And how does the opposite experience come to be? And this is what we're interested in having insight. We're interested in not just sort of hearing these instructions and just doing them because Mark said to do them, but we want to understand how it works. We want to become independent of a particular teacher or a particular teaching and really understand the science of our own mind. Like how things arise in our mind. How does 
uh, obsession, how does sadness, how do emotions arise, how do emotions cease? How does energy arise in our lived experience? How does the experience of dullness and the absence of energy arise? You know, we live as if, you know, the world happens to us, as if we're not participating in how we experience the world. And so more than anything, this path is really about, it's kind of a self-reliance. Instead of being the great victim, where we're sort of the victim of our circumstances, the victim of our genetics, the victim of our upbringing, the victim of, you know, the way the world is, the way our boss is, the way our partner is. We're, we're practicing in order to realize an independence. Now, it doesn't mean we're unaffected by those things, but there's a lot of freedom in how we relate to our partners and relate to our bosses and relate to the particular conditions of our body, the particular age we are, the particular place we live, the particular kind of childhood we had. It makes a world of difference how we relate to our conditions. That there's very much something we can do about that. We can't, I can't do much, if anything, about my genetics and I can't do anything about my upbringing and uh, there's not much we can do even about who we're around. I mean, over time we can change who we're around, but in this moment, you know, we're trapped together for at least another hour or so, 55 minutes. <laughs> So the question is, well, how do, how do you relate? Now that you've signed up and you're here, how do you relate? How is it possible, is it possible to be here and be happy and free and at ease and buoyant and alive? Because you know, it would be very easy to be here and suffer. All you have to do is think about how nice it would be to be snuggled in your bed with your favorite dessert, <clears throat> your favorite program on the tube, your favorite friend, you know, or, you know, thinking, oh, this may make sense, but I don't really have any time in my life for anything new. You know, you could, there's any number of ways you could obsess in a way that would be, make this experience, this next 55 minutes, really torturous. You could be thinking, looking around the room going, everybody else here can probably learn this, but not me. And that would be a real hell for 55 minutes. So we, we understand that a lot of how this moment is depends on how we're relating, what the mind is doing with this experience, how it's relating, what kind of filter we're receiving this experience through. So we want to, to begin a meditation practice, to begin this path of awakening, of awareness, we want to feel inspired that there's actually, uh, we participate in how our world is. It's not just dumped on us and there's nothing to do. And I think this fits not just in Buddhism, but I think it fits in most religious spiritual traditions. This um, kind of call to personal responsibility, taking responsibility for our actions and the most important action is what we're doing with our mind and we tend to neglect that. To, we don't tend to pay attention to where, you know, if our mind was a baby, we'd be very careful not to let it wander in places that are dangerous. 
but we let our minds go all kinds of places and we don't realize it's as if it does, we pretend it doesn't matter but it does matter it does matter where we let our mind wander off to the kind of thoughts we let the mind indulge in the kind of emotions the kind of attitudes we sort of dwell with it all has consequences this is the first this is related to that first insight you know like to see what's in the way it's really it's uh, in Buddhism it's called the insight into karma where we're seeing the truth of cause and effect that that there's a, a lawfulness operating here things just don't happen randomly things unfold conditionally this is a, a very important insight not something to believe in but something to recognize in our experience over and over again we need to have this insight literally thousands of times where we're seeing in a moment of, an, of experience we see like in an intuitive flash we see that what's arising is the natural and lawful unfolding of what's come before and then all of a sudden what arises out of that insight is a feeling of responsibility oh I want to be really awake because it matters for what I do it matters what I think it matters how I think it matters how I understand so on one level what we do matters and a more profound le level what we think matters and even on a more profound level how we understand the world matters even more because how we understand the world how we understand the nature of our lived experience or how we understand what the mind or what the heart is that determines the kind of thinking that's uh, that's reinforced and the kind of thinking kind of thoughts we think obsess on that has a lot to do with what we say and what we do in terms of our actions in the world so you know like for example if we wanted to make this world a perfect place we could spend a lot of time controlling people's behavior but we all know if you're a parent or have gotten involved in social action you know how frustrating that is it's much more useful to change how people think but in order to change how people think you have to change their understanding of who they are of what's going on here so this is really a path of wisdom but the way we change the way we think and the way we understand is we let our lived experience in the reason that we have such perverted understandings and such perverted thoughts or distorted thoughts is because our understanding and our thoughts aren't based on actual experience they're based on thoughts our thoughts are based on thoughts and so we keep you know we keep basically recreating what we had before well what did we have before well we were hungry hunted hungry hunted haunted animals <laughs> right whether you go back you know to the pre-civilization days or you go back whoever far back that's what we were and so we're, we're destined to keep repeating that unless we understand more deeply we have to understand experience reality from a deeper point of view than from that self-centered hungry haunted 
hungry, haunted, hunted animal, right? If that's all we see, then that's all we can imagine. So this is where insight, insight is to see beyond what we're already understanding. And the only way to do that is through a kind of more clear, more honest experience in the world, perception of things as they are. In Buddhism we call this Dhamma, waking up to Dhamma, the way it is, the way it actually is. Beyond our concepts, beyond expectations, it's a more direct experience. So when we're paying attention to the breath going in and out of the nostrils as an anchor in our meditation practice, it's not that a Buddhist or a meditation person thinks that somehow the breath is this sacred act, you know, and that it, it unlocks the key to the universe. It's that learning how to be fully present with the breath requires that we're fully present with the present moment. And the present moment has everything that we need to open to. It doesn't matter what we actually open to because what we're really opening to is things as they are. And it transforms our understanding. To really open to the present moment means we have to drop self-centered, uh, the self-centered view that we always live with. You know, this is true. You Sometimes you hear athletes talk about this. You hear artists talk about this. You hear children talk about it. I'm in a nice position because I hear all kinds of different people talk about these moments where they, for whatever reason, were fully absorbed, present in some activity. And they all of a sudden felt really free and alive and connected and happy and whole. And I want to understand why. And it isn't so much that they did something special, it's that they stopped doing something. They stopped living inside of that box, that self-centered box. And so that's really what all the technique, all the meditative techniques are about. Is First we have to realize that we're in this box. And we're basically recreating the same box over and over again. It's decorated slightly differently than it was when we were a teenager or in our 20s. But it's pretty much the same box. And all we can imagine is creating a better box. So that's all we do. We create a better box. And we're always afraid of someone destroying our box. So we have, then we want to defend our box. And we're willing to destroy other boxes in order to feel safe about our box. And, and we get a world like this. We get families like this. We get communities like this. We get a world like this, where there's a lot of confusion and violence. So real spiritual practice is to, 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 first of all, we have to get to know the box and to actually see, is the box the kind of box we think it is? Because our experience of being in a box is based on not really paying very close attention. We're too busy trying to create a better box to really know what the experience of this is. So first we learn how to pay attention to be fully present with our lived experience. So we get to know what it's like to be in a box. It's not pleasant. Meditation practice is often not very pleasant. Sorry. <laughs> if you came interested in light and lightness and joy and bliss, I mean, hopefully that will arise at times. But 
a lot of what arises is the, the very real and honest experience of being in a box, being trapped in our habit energy, in our condition, or in our conditioning. But the more we're there, the more we learn how to be there, composed, present, relaxed, fearless, patient, the more we begin to understand the box for what it really is. Superficially, we think the box is me. The more we sit, the more we realize the box is just a box. Thoughts are just thoughts. Emotions are just emotions. Ideas are just ideas. They're not self. They're not personal. They're not permanent. They're just things that come and go. I mean, what actually is a thought? We are so under the foot of our thoughts. But when we actually look, what actually is a thought? What's an emotion? How many of us have actually seen clearly what a thought is in the mind? It's not much of anything. And yet we are pretty much slaves to our thoughts and emotions. But we haven't actually seen them independent. We see thoughts all the time, but we see them with a particular view, that that's me talking to me there. <laughs> so I better listen. But that's not an independent view of thoughts. That's a dependent view. That's seeing thoughts dependent on a particular point of view. That thoughts are me, mine. And then they have, it's that view has a very serious consequence. So we're learning how to see thoughts, see emotions, see sensations of the body, hear sounds, taste tastes, smell smells, independent of self-view. We call that mindfulness. That's what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is being present relatively or completely free of any particular view. So the ultimate view is no view. Direct experience. Things as they are. But it takes some practice because it's, it's a very deep habit to live under this self-view. We've been conditioned to live this way, to think this way, and it's really hard to imagine anything else. It's like it's really hard for a fish to have a clear experience of water. It's been swimming in water its whole life, but it's probably completely oblivious to the experience of water. And it's a little bit like that for us. We've been sort of swimming in our particular view for a long time. It just seems the truth. We never. It, not that it's even useful to question it, but it never occurs to us that it's a view that we're living with. It's just a view. It's nothing more than thoughts or an idea. Our whole world is sort of built on thoughts and ideas, and then we become dependent on them because they're so familiar. So this point brings us to an experience that is not that uncommon, which is there's a lot of resistance when we start to systematically develop mindfulness. On some unconscious level, we're very dependent on being unconscious, un unaware of things as they actually are. Somehow we're dependent on our fixed notions of things in a way that we don't even realize. But we begin to realize it when we start to practice mindfulness, because Something so simple like sitting and being present with the body or being present with the breath is incredibly difficult to do. 
It's like you come back and then you're gone. And you come back and then the mind's gone. And you come back and it's gone. And it's like, well, why is that? So I say that so that you're not surprised uh, when you notice that in your sitting practice. Next week I'll talk a little bit more about how you might sit. But for this week, just explore like a sitting posture on a chair on the floor that supports both the intention of being relaxed and comfortable, which is really important. And equally important is a posture that supports a feeling of wakefulness or alertness. So there's, you know, that that kind of stereotypic meditative pose where there's a sense of composure or integrity in the body and also a kind of fearlessness like I'm here and I'm willing to be with whatever's going to arise in the mind or body for this period of time. But you don't want that at the expense of being comfortable and stable. So you have to find some compromise between those two um, qualities in your sitting. So do the best you can for the first minute or so and then just accept how it is. It's not going to be perfect, but it will be good enough. So in a few minutes we'll do another sit, but let's stand for a couple minutes so that you can stretch your legs. And you might just do a few stretches and then when you're ready, come into a standing position. Knees a little bent. The nice thing about mindfulness is it goes wherever we go. You don't need any special equipment and you don't need any special posture. So while we're letting the legs stretch out, we'll just begin our practice in this posture. It has a very esoteric name, standing meditation. (laughs) (laughs) So let's begin by simply receiving the experience of the feet, making contact with the floor. as if we've been given this simple assignment to know the experience of contact or pressure. And not to know it in just one moment, but to develop for periods of time a continuity of attention or a continuity of knowing this experience of weight or pressure. So not our thoughts about the feet touching the floor, but the actual physical sensations of contact. And notice how they're constantly changing. It's not a one thing. It's an unfolding process. And also including the legs both legs, just as they are now. Feeling the pelvis. Notice any tension or notice any qualities of release 
feeling the belly. Feeling the rib cage and the spine. Feel the weight of the arms. Feel the hands. Feeling the neck and the head. One of the most common anchors for meditation practice is the actual experience of the breath coming in and the breath going out of the body. So you can either notice the movement of the breath by putting the attention at the tip of the nostrils if you're breathing through your nose or by your lips if you're breathing through your mouth. Or some people find it better to feel the breath in terms of the expansion and contraction of the abdomen. So choose a particular place where the ordinary movement of the breath is easy to see or to feel. See if it's possible to become interested in the ongoing stream of sensations of the breath, but without needing to control the breath. Just let it unfold however that is. Even if it feels rough or controlled, let go of any intention to control the breath. And you might find it useful to repeat a word like breathing in as the breath comes in and then repeating the words breathing out as the breath goes out. Or if you're feeling the breath in the belly, you could just note rising as the breath comes in falling as the breath goes out. And no matter how many times the mind wanders, with great gentleness and patience, but also persistence, just begin again. Feel the body standing, feeling the movement of the breath in the body. Let the attention come or receive the ordinary sensations of breathing. Just let the breath happen.
appreciating the simplicity of this practice. Now in just a moment, we're going to continue the practice, but instead of the breath being the anchor for our mindfulness, we're going to let the movement of the body as we come back into a sitting position, we're going to let all the different movements be the object of our mindfulness. So just notice now as you begin to move, maybe your eyes open, coming back to your cushion, just feel the body moving. Feel the stretching. Happy to be aware of the body. Doing your best to find a stable, comfortable posture. Bringing a quality of uprightness into the posture without creating a lot of stress. When you feel settled, if you feel like it, you can close your eyes lightly or keep them partly open. Taking a few moments, feel the whole body sitting. See if it's possible to accept the way the body is now, accept the sensations that are present now. Understanding that the body is like this, can this be okay? And if it's possible, notice the movement of the, of the breath in the body. either noting the in and out of each breath or the rising and falling, or just awareness and silence of the in and out breath. Being willing to begin again each time the mind wanders. And we'll continue for another 10 minutes in silence.
remember these two qualities. We're using the mindfulness of the breath to develop the capacity to be alert, to be interested and alert with things as they are. And the other quality is to develop the capacity to be more and more relaxed, accepting. So for a few more minutes, present with the body just as it is, and the breath moving in the body. And of course, aware of distractions too. If it's possible, just see the distraction, let it go, and come back to the breath. But when that's not possible, then let the distraction become the object of meditation. So we're noticing whatever it is that's present in the body or present in the mind that's drawing the attention. See if it's possible to recognize it as something happening right here and now. It's just thought, it's just emotion, or it's just sensation. It's just what it is, something being known here and now. once again for the last minute or so. Let's practice taking refuge in the experience here and now, even if it's unpleasant. 
see if it's possible to become more receptive or accepting. Just allow the body to be, allow the breath to be, and also allowing the mental content, emotions to be. Simply things being known, can this be okay? What I and other people have found helpful over the years is uh, for people to share a little bit about what they're noticing in their meditation practice, what seems to be working, what doesn't, obstacles that they've encountered. It's really important. One of the real advantages of being in a group like this is to normalize the kinds of experiences that you have so it doesn't, it can feel so much like this is just happening to me. So if you have any questions or would like to share what you're working with, what came up in the sit, what was difficult, what was easy, please speak up and you need to speak really loudly so everyone can hear you and if you'd like you might also want to say your name. Anybody have some thoughts? Yes. I'm Jason, and um, whenever I sit, different parts of my body go numb. Yeah, it's pretty common, especially in, uh, sitting on the floor, for uh, parts of the body to go numb. You probably know it's just uh, some nerve is being squeezed or pinched in a way, so it affects the experience of sensation. And if when you stand, if it clears up really clearly, then you don't really need to worry about it, except that it's an unpleasant experience. And then you can just decide to work with that unpleasantness as, because you know, most of us feel unpleasant sensations when we sit. That's just a particular um, quirky unpleasant experience. But it's just, when it comes right down to it, as long as we know we're not harming the body, it's just an unpleasant experience, like a fly walking on the back of your hand or you know, any other number of unpleasant experiences. 
And so the question is, well, you can move, but then all we're doing is reinforcing that habit, which is if something's unpleasant, unpleasant, we get rid of it. And we never develop that independence, like how to be happy with this unpleasant experience that's happening now. So as long as you feel like you're not harming the body, I would work with it on that level. And you know, if you want to experiment at the beginning of your sit, how you're sitting, so you might find a way to sit where you're not pinching the particular nerve that's causing the numbness, you know, it doesn't hurt to spend a little time. But once you start to sit, that's not the time to do that experimenting. Then just live with the decision you made in terms of how you decided to sit as much as you can. Now, of course, there will be times in the sit where the unpleasantness of the sensations in the body are so strong that it's overwhelming. <coughs> and instead of like really you know, tightening up in order to survive the sit, you might, it might be better to move. Because if we're just really tightening up, what we're doing is reinforcing the habit that when things are unpleasant, get tight. And we don't want that. We want to realize a way of practicing when things get unpleasant, we practice relaxing and opening, not tightening up. So, but there's a, there's a real uh, edge. In general, the first several times that our mind is screaming at us to move, we shouldn't believe it. So I'm not saying you should move, but just don't believe it the first several times it tells you to move. Just say, maybe, you know, in your mind, oh, as if you're saying, well, maybe I should move, but let's just see. Let's just see. Maybe this, is, maybe this can be okay. It's just this feeling of numbness. So maybe then, instead of your breath being the anchor for your meditation, the experience of the leg falling asleep, because it's so predominant, you might not be able to keep the attention at the tip of the nose or here as the belly expands and contracts. So you put your attention in the leg, and you're practicing being mindful of the unfolding stream of unpleasant sensations that is this leg going numb. And you just do those two things, really awake, alert, and really relaxed, at ease, trusting it. And you'll learn how to be independent, how to be free with that experience in enough, with, you know, with enough practice. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. We talk about distractions and, and the meditation we're trying to be with what's real. Hearing the sounds that are around, whether it's somebody coughing or a truck in the street, those are not really distractions, are they? If you're alert and you can continue to focus and yet Note these things, mm -hmm. that's okay, isn't it? Yeah. We're not trying to push anything out of the mind. So when we put the attention on the nose or on the movement here in the belly or whatever you're using for the anchor, and remember, the breath isn't the only mindfulness anchor. There are many other ones. But let this is a traditional one, so I'll just talk about it as if it's the one everybody's using, although some of you may be using other meditation objects. But even though we're focusing, in a sense, on the breath here as the belly expands and contracts or as the touching sensation as the air goes in and out of the nostrils, of course, there are other things. We are a sensitive creature, and in fact, we're deepening, we're increasing the sensitivity of the mind, of the heart. So we're more likely to notice the bus driving by, more likely to notice somebody shifting. But 
when the mind goes to those other present moment phenomena, it just is present, alert and relaxed, and then comes right back. And sometimes the interest with the breath is strong enough that it's just noticed in the background. But sometimes the sound of traffic or the sound of someone moving, for whatever reason, becomes the predominant experience. And it's not even a choice. The attention just goes there. And we just notice it going there. And we know it with relaxation and alertness. And then it's over and we come right back to the anchor. So it is good in the beginning for most people to work with a specific anchor. But then, you know, if you want to take a few minutes at the end of the practice, drop your specific anchor and just let the attention be what we can call open attention, where we're simply aware of the whole body, aware of sounds, aware of if the eyes are open, the visual experience. Even when the eyes are closed, of course, there's still visual experience. So it's a very inclusive awareness. But in the beginning, it's nice to give the, the mind a specific anchor so that it really notices the difference between being scattered and being present. Once we know what it's like to be present, then we can be present with many different objects, not at the same moment, but this and then that, and not lose the sense of being present, you know, not get distracted in any of the objects. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. It's very common because our mind is often uh, conceptualizing our experience. So uh, it's just what our mind is in the habit of doing is kind of creating a mental image out of what we're actually noticing or what's actually happening. But so that's what we call seeing, even though it's not something we're seeing. Uh, visually, that we're seeing it mentally. We're having a mental image. So when you notice that, just recognize that. So the alertness, if your mind is alert, your alertness will tell you that's just seeing. And let that happen in the background if it's happening. But train the attention to notice the sensations because that's what we're training the mind to take up as its anchor is the actual sensations of the breath. But don't be disturbed by a mental image that corresponds with it. Just let it happen in the background. Try not to let it become the anchor. Other experiences? Yeah, Fazia. Right, right. So 
for Mm -hmm. Yeah, but part of being independent and self-reliant is understanding what supports our practice. You know, it's like having a kind of clarity that it is different when I'm with other people than when I'm alone. It is easier to practice. So, uh, so we take advantage of what works. Just like you would practice in a quiet room at home instead of a noisy room. If you're someone who's really sleepy in the morning, it may be better to practice in the evening than in the morning. Or if you're somebody who's really restless in the evening, maybe it's better to practice in the morning. So we want to use the conditions that support our practice. Um, but eventually, we want to be able to practice in any condition. But we don't have to look for difficulty. Difficulty will find us. So when we get supportive conditions, we want to take advantage of them. Because we can develop some momentum when it's supportive. And who knows, it may not be supportive later. And in case you didn't hear Fazia, she mentioned earlier that she was feeling some pain from kidney stones. And that she noticed that as she practiced accepting, like not resisting, but accepting the pain and being mindful, that the pain went away. And what we learn is that a lot of our pain arises because of our resistance. So there's two things. There's the actual pain of the kidney stones. And then there's the mental resistance and fear and all the other sort of ways the mind tightens up around the experience. That can disappear very quickly. And surprisingly, a lot of the time, that's the more predominant of the two kinds of pain. The mental suffering that we create around difficult experience sometimes is much greater in a particular moment than the actual difficult experience. So the actual pain of kidney stones may, I don't know, I haven't had them, but may come and go. But the mental pain of not liking having kidney stones and being afraid that it's going to get worse and how am I going to live, and that can be constant and totally oppressive. And that's something we can do something about. The kidney stones, you know, well we can do, maybe we can do something about that. Hopefully you can do something about that. But until you do do something about that, that's just something we have to accept. Because resistance doesn't work. It's not that we, don't, we want to accept the pain of kidney stones or the pain of loss or any other pain that we experience as a human being. But we can learn, our wisdom tells us that fighting it, resisting it, just makes it worse. It's that second pain, which we call dukkha, sort of the unnecessary pain that we create. Mm -hmm. Yes, first. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She was talking about her labor pain and breathing with that and how that can make a big difference. And one of the things it does is uh, and I, one of the things I always like to mention, I'll just say it briefly, is we have such a strong habit when there's a painful experience in life to tighten up. 
So when we learn to be mindful, it gives us another option, which is to be relaxed with painful experience. It's like a whole other world that we don't know about. So remember what I said earlier that come next Tuesday, you may decide you don't want to come. And just see if you can notice that that's just resistance. It's just fear or it's just boredom or whatever it is for you in that moment. And just decide to come anyway. Something like, well, I'm going to give it six weeks, see if it's useful, and then I'll decide whether I want to continue with the practice. So that's my encouragement. Don't forget to sign in, and there are some handouts on that table. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.